What struck me about today's guest was how comfortable she is in the type of leader she shows up to be. I shall admit it's been a work in progress over a varied career in the NHS, but a strong sense of values and a clear purpose to make a difference has helped guide in even the most challenging of times. I'm Lee Griffith, a communication strategist, executive coach and all-round champion of leaders who shun the old school stereotypes. I'm here to help you get clear on your strategy, implement some self-leadership and connect with those you serve through your communications so that you can deliver improved organisational performance, engagement and reputation. Sign up to my newsletter to receive even more useful insights into how to be an impactful leader. You can also find out how I can support your organisation to better connect with the people it serves. Visit sundayskies.com to find out more. Today I'm talking with Trudy Davis, CEO of Gateshead Health NHS Foundation Trust. Trudy shares how she's stayed motivated over a 30-year career, how she's got organisational alignment in taking an upside-down approach to management, how she copes with being an NHS leader in the face of relentless challenge, and why her dog is a famous face amongst colleagues. Enjoy. So I'm delighted to welcome Trudy Davis to the Leaders with Impact podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm going to jump straight in with my first question, which is what does impactful leadership mean to you? That's a really broad question, isn't it, Lee? Because I think the impactful leadership is very much dependent on where you're working and what you're doing. And for me, as a chief executive in the NHS, impactful leadership is making a difference to the people I serve, whether that be patients or our staff. And I choose my words around who I serve quite carefully because I believe that as a chief executive officer within the NHS, you are actually in a very privileged position and that you do serve the people who work with you in an organisation because they are the people that look after our patients. So an impact for me is that when I make a difference for them, the impactful leadership element of it is how I can create a culture and environment where they feel able to make a difference for our patients. Brilliant. Thank you. So I always like to go right back to the beginning of um, a person's kind of career and what's shaped them as the person that they are. For you, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you've I suppose, become the person that you are today? I currently live in the north of England, as you know, but I didn't start out like that. I lived, I was born in Devon. Right. I was in a fairly small town in North Devon and I probably had a fairly poor childhood. I learned very early in my childhood that working hard gave you results Mm. and I wanted to work hard. But I came probably from a background where ambition wasn't really high on the agenda. I didn't have ambition. Nobody in my family had been to university. I just wanted to live a happy life, really. I started to gain ambition when I um, I wanted to be mm. a, a nurse at the local hospital and I worked hard to be a nurse. And that does indicate that there was some ambition, but I didn't see that as particularly ambitious. I saw it as something I really wanted to do. And from the very minute that I set foot in that hospital on the ward, North Devon District Hospital, I found a place where I was immediately happy. Mm. I found that I was working with people who I wanted to be with, who wanted to be with me, and we shared a common purpose, a common goal, 
And my ambition, that spark started in me then. And my ambition then started, you know, I want to be a staff nurse. I want to be a staff nurse on this ward. And then I wanted to be a sister on this ward. I've never thought far ahead, but I've always wanted to be better than what I am from that point onwards, because I I learned very quickly that you can do that in the NHS. You can, you're surrounded very often by people who want you to be the best you can be, because that gives patients a better outcome. And, Mm. and, And so my career started way back then. So my nurse training started in 1992. It was like a very long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) You've obviously stuck around in the NHS since since then. What's kept you there? Oh, everything. I wouldn't work anywhere else. I love it. I love working in the NHS. I love working with people. I love the diversity of the people I work with. I love the diversity of the jobs that I do. I love the opportunities. I like the experiences. I learn something new every day. I'm challenged every day. I'm often annoyed every day as well, but you know, that's, that's the way it goes. I just feel that I work with people in the NHS who share a common set of values. And I hadn't realized that till later in my career that that, that is what motivates me. Because quite often it's when you work with people who don't share your values that you realize what actually does make a difference to you in life. And actually I feel very, very attached to the NHS and very, very proud of what the NHS does mm. in very difficult circumstances. And you made that shift from nursing, the front line, as they, yeah. they would say, into operational management and you've had a yeah. really varied career. Why did you make that shift, I suppose? It was unintentional, really. I think it comes with having curiosity. I remember I was a sister on a stroke unit in Leeds, which is a, another great job. I love that. We would really try very hard to get the patients directly to the stroke unit because their outcomes are better. Of course they are. You know, these days I I know all about getting um, expert care to the right place early. But in those days, I just knew that the patients did better when they got to us. And I wanted to understand more about that process and how patients got their bed, how Mm. they lapsed through, how everything happened. And to do that, I couldn't do that from the ward environment where I was. I needed to do that by branching out a little bit. So I moved into service improvement and I worked with the modernization agency through Leeds Teaching Hospitals. So learned a lot of service improvement techniques. And as well as learning a lot, I also um, realized there was a lot I didn't know, which is why I realized I had no idea about how the hospital actually ran other than the clinical parts. I didn't know about waiting lists. I didn't know about booking. I didn't know about anything like that. So mm. I went and worked in trauma and orthopedics as a business manager and rapidly learned on the job. And every time I found something I didn't know, I got another job. So I learned how to do it. So I, that's how I worked my way around the hospital. And what's that taught you, I suppose, is you've moved into more senior roles. As you say, you didn't know what you didn't know whilst you were moving into each yeah. of these roles. How has that helped shape you now as the leader that you are? Always be inquisitive. Always ask questions. People will tell you. People like to talk about themselves. Mm. People like to tell you what they know. They like to share their knowledge. And if you're prepared to listen, you will learn. And The more you ask, the more you learn and the more rounded individual you are as a manager and you begin to make much more informed decisions, have more informed conversations. But it's respectful of the people that do the job who are experts already in that job that you're learning from them. 
And I learned that very, very quickly. As soon as you're, you're out of your comfort zone, it's easy to feel stressed, feel worried, feel anxious. But in the NHS, there are experts all around you. There's always someone cleverer than you. Always. Mm. We work with very clever people across the NHS and experts. Why not use their expertise? And it, I learned that very, very early. Yeah, yeah. So over a course of about 30 years, you've slowly been working your way up the country. You're now in Gateshead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't go much further north, I suppose. <laughs> and you've been chief exec there for almost a year, is it? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, almost a year. What's What's been your biggest learning in that transition into a chief executive role, having been, you know, clinician into operational management? It must feel very different once again. It feels different, but it feels very natural. The difference is the level of responsibility I feel for our staff and our patients and the drive to get that right. And that lives with me. But I've always had a sense of responsibility in the jobs that I've had. But it is particularly tough as chief executive. It does feel quite isolated in terms of that responsibility. There's also a lot that's familiar because it is the NHS, it is a hospital. I am comfortable in that environment taking what I am comfortable with and making the effort to learn the culture here and the culture in the Northeast, because I've come from the West Yorkshire region. So to move into the Northeast, it's a new region as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the hospital I've moved, it's the region. And actually the networks as a chief executive are, are quite different. You're, you're working with other chief executives and other providers, you're working across system and place. So all those people are new to me. So the hospital is really my comfort zone, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in that way, that it's not just about going into the new organisation. You're, you're the new girl in, in the, yeah, the patch, yeah, yeah, yeah everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> so what reserves have you had to pull on, I suppose, as, as the new girl? I've always got a lot of energy and enthusiasm. It doesn't take a lot to keep me motivated. And I get my energy from the familiar. Mm. I do worry and I do have bad days and I do sit here and think, oh, crikey. I've done the right thing. And you can get into a little bit of a negative cycle, can't you, of anxiety and worrying mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if you just sit too much and you look at a screen and rehearse the email that you maybe shouldn't have sent or you should have sent. But it takes about five minutes to just walk across the road and go up to the hospital or into our community services and um, have a chat with a few people and answer a few questions and have a cup of tea in the canteen. And then you feel a lot better about life help people find their way around, feel really proud that actually you can help people find that clinic because, you know, 10 months ago, nearly a year ago, I had no idea where <laughs> anything was. So I feel incredibly proud of myself when I can help people out just in getting somewhere. And my energy is restored instantly, Yeah, instantly. Yeah. So, so it's fairly easy to re-energise. And how do you think your approach to leadership's changed as you've grown I suppose in the different roles the different organizations yeah I guess when I was younger when I was you know ward sister or a fairly junior manager I used to think probably more along the lines that leadership was about authority and management mm. and it's not at all leadership's about influencing in culture and taking people with you on a journey or you going with them on their journey and helping to steer that journey. And it's a privilege. That's changed over the years. And I know that my behaviours have changed, but it, it was only really when I did my master's, which I did quite late in life, so not long ago, that I tried to apply some 
real academic thinking into what I wanted my leadership style to be and why, and what leadership style is needed to have a positive impact on patient outcomes. And mm-hmm. I challenged myself on that on my dissertation. What did I need to do to create a positive outcome for patients and make a material difference in their outcomes? And I spent a lot of time recognising that if you believe and academia supports that an engaged workforce and a happy workforce deliver better outcomes because we have psychological safety amongst the workforce, which allows them to innovate and allows them to do the right thing, that my job is to make sure that we've got a happy and safe workforce that allows Mm. them to be the best that they can be. And that true belief that the person who's doing the job knows best how to do the job. And if you recognize and believe that, you recognize that that allows for some differences in that people do do things differently. And we'd, we'd had a brief chat before, Lee, about the, the Timpsons model, which I found so simple and so inspiring, you know, mm. that that true belief that they call it upside down management, mm. that the people who do the job know best how to do the job. So let them do the job. Don't write a policy of how you think the job should be done. Don't write a standard operating procedure that says this is how the job should be done. Write the standard operating procedure in the way it is done. And the people who are doing the job tell you how that is. And then best practice rolls out. So you're you're not trying to impose. You're trying to evolve. And the Timpsons model with their very simple rules, we've tried to adapt and adopt here at Gateshead to say, if, if you have the privilege of giving frontline care, your job is quite s- simple. You do whatever you can in the, within your means to give the best experience to our patients. And if you don't give frontline care, you're just as important. But your job is to make sure the people who do give frontline care can give the patients the best experience, whether mm-hmm. that's through making sure we train, we educate, we support, we pay, we recruit. We do everything in a way that's right, that allows our staff to be the best that they can be. Yeah. And it, it's when you connect to that, that actually your job profile changes. It's no longer about setting the rules. It's understanding what the rules are and guiding the culture to where we collectively want it to be. And did you have to do any work with the board and your executive team to get them on that page with you? or, or were they... Yeah, we, we did it together. As, as part of my dissertation, we were really clear that the ambition that we've got is to be the best place to work in the NHS. So they supported my dissertation and we undertook a thematic review to make sure we understood the culture that was here. So we ran focus groups, we looked at reports, external reports, surveys, understood what people were saying, played that back to people and created a review which identified nine themes of where we wanted to be. And then as a board, we worked through those themes and said, is this right? Is that what we agree? Mm -hmm. And we call it our thematic review and we use that to drive some of the changes. We took that to our governors, we took that to staff, our, our clinical leaders group, through board. And the actions are still being done now. We're still working on that. And we check back to that review to say, are we where we need to be? And there are practical things in there, but there are developmental things in there. So one of the clear outcomes was goal congruence amongst the board team, that unitary board, when we Mm. are all signed up to the same vision and the same goals and we pull together, sharing corporate responsibility then we will be successful. Mm. But how do you do that? And, and that unitary board function, how do you share those? How do you work together? How do you create 
that same vision and drive. So we've worked hard on our relationships. So that unitary board function is a work in progress where we are learning to work with each other and steer and give the same messages and then trying to roll that through the organisation so that all of the teams that we work with share that level of shared vision and understanding so that that we're all pulling in the same direction, which is a direction that's set by the people who do the job in this organisation and our patients. So there's a lot of hard work gone into it. So I'm sure we'll be at it for a long time. I'm sure yeah. it's eternal, actually, yeah. but it's very satisfying. Yeah. Um, I, as you were talking, one thing that sprung to mind is the fact that you, you know, you're not operating in isolation. You're part of a wider system. You've obviously mm. got the broader political influence and an impact on the stuff that you do how does that work when you've got an approach which is let the experts do what they need to do and then perhaps externally you're being told what to do by people who aren't experts yeah. <laughs> but maybe I'm being a bit blunt in saying that but... yeah. yeah well I mean in locally well I do and the, the Gateshead place we have a really great working relationship with people across our system because Again, they are experts in what they do. So the, that mutual respect comes into play. We do a lot of work with our local authority and our voluntary sector who are experts in their own right. And we work together, bringing our expertise together. We are given targets. We are given standards to hit. Let's assume that those standards are all there to try and make the patient outcome better. What I say and what we say here is let's not hit the target and miss the point. Let's mm. do both. So if the target is about waiting list size, the way to manage the waiting list size, they're multiple. But the thing that we want to do is treat more patients. We want to treat more patients because we want to reduce the waiting list size by giving better care, by treating more people, by getting them well, getting them back to work. That's what our clinical staff want to do. They're not interested in management techniques to manage a waiting list. Mm. They want the waiting list size to be reduced because we're treating more patients. What we do together is we say, actually, to get that waiting list size down, there is an element of validating that wait waiting list, which is an admin function. But that means we offer appointments to the right patients at the right time. So if collectively we take every goal that we're given in the organisation and we turn it into what is the benefit for patients and say, actually, if we achieve this, we will, we will make a difference to our patients. You can actually work through 90% of the things that you're asked to do and maintain your vision and goal to be the best place to work and the best place to offer care in the NHS. So it's a glass half full approach. I could spend time moaning and thinking about why that's not right. It's wasted energy. I need to get on and we need to do the right thing for our, our population. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That's my year of the reframe is what can I control and what can't I? And that's one Absolutely. of the things you can't. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you know, let, let's do what's right and um, yeah. let's hope that when you live by the right values and you do the right thing, you get the right outcome and you will get recognised accordingly and let's live by that belief. Yeah, hear, hear. So we're recording this interview on the back of what have been really lengthy industrial action, public demand of services is higher than it's ever been. What does that feel like to be an NHS leader at the moment? There are many emotions because the passion that everybody has, whether they are taking industrial action or not, to work in the NHS is to look after people and treat more people. And people choose to take industrial action. There's an internal struggle 
for each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. And everybody will make their own choice about the action that they take. And that's not mine to judge. My job is to keep the hospital safe while that happens and mm-hmm. maintain the premise that all of our staff want to do the right thing. And I feel very worried quite a lot of the time about getting that balance right, making sure that we do support people to take industrial action where they feel the need to, but protecting the services that we give and protecting the ambition that we have for this organisation. And Mm. every time we have industrial action, we slip back a bit in the ambition that we're trying to deliver, trying to keep a team motivated when we've done huge amounts of good work and then suddenly you can see it being eroded in front of Mm. you and you know sometimes the disappointment that you're causing people who've worked so hard. It's frustrating, it's hard work, but it's just part of the reality of which we're living in. Yeah. And we can't give up and we're not going to. We we are going to make things better. So the effort is that level of motivation. And, And we've just done some feedback at Gateshead over the you know, this financial year, what we've achieved. And some of our performance has improved hugely. We've really made good progress into our responsiveness, our quality, our weightiness, etc. The teams here have done a fabulous job on productivity. And we need to reflect that. And it's quite hard to say, look, look how fabulous things are. Mm. And respect that the fact that they're really hard, people are working really hard. So to keep that connection, you know, I don't live in cloud cuckoo land. I know this is really difficult. But Mm. people are still able to achieve and getting that balance right from a leadership perspective is difficult in the messaging and that communication so that you don't appear disconnected from the organisation. That was what was going through my mind as you were talking. You've got that push and pull, haven't you, of trying to keep people's morale up whilst recognising where they're at, trying to focus and deal with the here and now pressure whilst having an eye to the future. So there's this constant Mm. kind of back and forth that must be going on. Are there any practical things that you're doing and putting in place that's helping you to stay present but be mindful of where you're going? There are practical things in terms of how we look at the structures of our communication, what we communicate, when we communicate, who Mm. communicates, so that we can try and get that balance right and get Mm. the feedback right. And I think that's something that you, we will be working on forever. We can always improve how we do that. But it is really dependent on us getting the feedback of the teams in the organization, you know, getting feedback from people about how did that land? How did that feel? Was it okay? Is it all right out there? You know, where is there a problem? And where there's not a problem, let's not pretend that it's all okay. Let's, let's call that out. Mm-hmm. Let's say, actually, this happened, it really wasn't great. We're going to try making this better. And how that works then is people believe that you then do know what's going on. I don't always, but I try really hard. Those practical elements of of staying connected, being visible, being out and about, help me to keep the balance right, because the direction is only set from where we are and where people want to go. So the aim of this podcast is to prove that it's possible that you can lead in a different way and that you don't have to conform to all the old stereotypes. And I'm sure you probably have seen this in your career. I know when I've worked in the NHS and with friends and family who still work there, there is still an element of some leaders with outdated approaches. Perhaps it's not not what we'd see as the modern view of leadership. And I know, obviously, you're, you're on this show that you've 
see leadership in a different way and everything you've been talking about has, has demonstrated that. But I'm interested in maybe the challenges that you faced over your career and how you overcame tackling some of the outdated stereotypes of, of what a leader should be. If I'm really honest, when I have tried to work as I thought a leader might need to work, and I have tried possibly to be something that doesn't sit naturally with me, I've not done well and I've Mm. been unhappy. I think I probably, earlier in my career, didn't actually handle that very well. There's a particular period I can think about where I thought I'm quite senior now. I need to be like this. Mm. This is how I will behave, what I'll do. And I tried it and and I wasn't getting the results and I wasn't successful. I got into a cycle where I wasn't able to deliver what I wanted to deliver. So I tried harder to do this Mm. and it didn't work for me. It genuinely made me feel sad and unhappy. And I remember having a, a look at myself and thinking, do you know what? This is beginning to affect my home life. I'm not happy at work. I'm trying all the things I think I should be doing. And someone very wise, a coach to me said, you're not living your values. You're trying Mm. to live somebody else's values. You're trying to be something you're not. If the job requires you to do that, do you want that job? And I do know, I thought I had a word with myself and I thought, yeah, I don't, I don't want this. I am who I am at the heart. I just want to do a good job. I'm, Mm. I'm, I, I was a nurse when I started out. I'm from a small town in Devon. I'm not a natural political networker. I'm never going to be. I am who I am. And I like working with people. And as soon as I switched my head back on and thought, just be who you are, I realized that that was the most important thing for me. Yeah. And that's, that's not arrogance. It's not arrogance uh, in that who I am is better than anybody else. Who I am is who I am. Mm-hmm. And who I am works for where I am now in my career. And at the minute, Gateshead and I, have a great working relationship. I need them. They need me. We work really well together. And there may came a, come a time when they need something else or, or I do. I, I hope it's not for a long time, but we'll find our way together because we're all trying to do the same thing. So that lesson for me about authenticity came hard. I don't know about you, but I had a similar epiphany in my career as well. And and it can be hard as, as you try to find, refind your feet of who you were because people around you have expect you to be something else and, and you get a bit of pushback from that. And that can be a challenge in and of itself. Yeah, Did you find absolutely. that? To some extent, yeah, because people watch you. And when you're in a senior position, people learn from you. And I don't think it's always obvious just how much impact a leader can have on those around them. And one of the things that as a leader you need to be is fairly consistent. And and when you are having these internal struggles, mm-hmm. <laughs> bad days, good days, and that that local epiphany, as we've just described it, people are looking at you thinking, what's, what's <laughs> she going to come out with next? You know, it's probably a bit disconcerting. But I did have a proper word with myself and getting some good coaching and some mentoring and taking wise words from wise people mm. who you trust helps you to do that and being honest and actually if you get things wrong at those times just say actually I'm really trying I'm really trying to to be different I'm really trying to achieve this Mm -hmm. or whatever it is and actually the people that matter will support you the people that don't matter won't so don't worry about it yeah back to that what's in your control yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah Yeah. (laughs) 
And you've touched on authenticity. And one of the things that I loved when um, I saw you speak at, at an event last year was how prominent your dog was in your oh. life as a leader. <laughs> Yeah, I've got two of them. I've got two dogs. They're, they're both precious to me, my baby. I mean, I've got a Labrador too, so I completely understand why they yeah. become such a big part of your life. Um, yeah. But the fact that it caught my attention shows how connecting it can be, I suppose, to learn more about the human behind the leader that you yeah. see every yeah. day. And yeah. my question is around your decision making to share that part and other bits of your life with your organization or you're on twitter so you know the, the world almost you're sharing it yeah, yeah, yeah. because so many leaders can be hesitant about talking about their personal life they, they can feel quite vulnerable about sharing anything that's personal about themselves and and some try to put this complete separation in between what they see work is and, and life was it a really conscious decision on your part to, to bring your whole self or has it been an evolution? I think it's been an evolution, but to be honest, they are part of me. My family, my life is part of me. Mm. And if I've come into this organisation, you know, what a privilege it is to come here and be the chief executive at Gateshead. Half the organisation didn't choose me. They don't know me. They're working in an organisation where I'm setting the tone. And I'm asking them to follow me. Well, it, quite frankly, it's rude if you don't give something of yourself back. Mm. And, you know, when I go out on the wards and I chat to people, I would always start by saying, how are you? How's things? Are you all right? Just chat. I recently went to our orthopedic ward to find out we've got a member of staff who's 60 soon. We're going to have a party on the ward. That took up probably half of the time that I was on the ward before I actually got to the reason why I was there. And that wasn't me thinking, oh, I'm going to have a false conversation and find out of it. Mm. I was genuinely interested what was going on the ward and what made them tick. And if I'm asking them questions, they've got a right to ask me questions. So I'm coming into their life. I, I'm running this organization. Why can't they know about me and who I am? And the mm. fact that I love my family and my dogs more than anything, and I miss them terribly because I'm currently in Gateshead in the week. And then it leads in the weekend until we move up. So we're in the process of moving. So part of my connecting and staying with my family is to share that with people here. So behind me, you might see there's a calendar on the wall. Mm. That's the Gateshead pet calendar. My pet's in there. Oh, wow. So we have the pet calendar come out and we all share our pets as an example. But also, because I write a weekly message, I keep people updated on uh, my move. I've had lots of help and advice as to where to <laughs> so we have, I, we try and have a conversation. We're all living here. We're all working here. We're all life. We're all people. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know where to get my shopping. I didn't know which taxi service to use. I don't know how to get to places. But if you ask people, they'll tell you. Yeah. And life becomes a lot easier when you've got some friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want a copy of this calendar. Right? <laughs> brilliant. It's brilliant. There's dogs, cats, hamsters, all sorts in there. And if I thought I've got two tortoises as well, Barbara and Jeff, but I didn't put Barbara and Jeff. Oh, you can't forget the tortoises. <laughs> I know, I know they're hibernating at the minute. We've just got to hope they survive. It's always an anxiety provoking Aww. time. But yeah, <laughs> so Barbara and Jeff aren't in it, but the other, Alan and Sebi are. I hadn't realised that you're, you're obviously doing this commute then between yeah, yeah. quite a distance between places. And you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier about it can be really isolating yeah being chief exec i can imagine it's even more so when you've got that distance and you haven't got the people to go home to at the end of an evening yeah. for example how, how yeah. are you coping with that 
I'm working too much, actually, because it becomes easy to just work all the time. But I've made a real effort to try and make some friends. So I go out for dinner with people. The Northeast is a really welcoming place. So the other chief executives on Patch are hugely supportive, hugely supportive of me, hugely helpful to me, great allies in terms of helping me to integrate into the area, very supportive of helping me find my feet in the political arena and socially as well, helping me to just find myself in the Mm -hmm. Northeast. And I've joined a a yoga class myself and the chief operating officer and the director of people in OT. Go to hot yoga, we're really bad at it. It's terrible. <laughs> but we do it and we go, you know, and, and it's just that sort of thing to try and not work all the time. But the fact that my family have agreed to move up with me, which is brilliant, means soon we'll all be back together again. So that'll be great. Yeah, and lovely. Well, I wish you all the best with, with the Thank move you. When, when you do that. So my final question is, what's the one piece of advice you would give someone aspiring into a chief executive role? Be comfortable with who you are. You will be tested at every stage in your journey to becoming a chief executive and the pressure is huge. But if you're comfortable with yourself and you're comfortable with your decision making and you're comfortable with your framework of decision making and you are able to sleep at night because you have done the best that you can do and you've tried your hardest and you have supported people, then everything will be okay one way or another. It doesn't mean that everything will work, but you will be able to rationalise your decisions because it's that pressure of have I done the right thing? You, You need a set of guiding principles that gets you somewhere and keeping that set of principles close to you allows you to be successful and navigate the journey and that will help you to get to either be a chief executive or to be a good chief executive. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not yet in the uh, arena where you'd say I'm a good chief executive. I've not even been here a year yet. I think time will tell, but I'm going to stick to those principles. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. If people want to reach out and connect with you, you're online, how can they find you? Probably the best ways on Twitter or on X. X, yeah, whatever they're called today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm on Twitter. That's the easiest, easiest way to find me. Perfect. And I'll add all your details in the show notes for anyone that's interested. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode please let me know on apple podcasts or on app of choice and drop me a line over on linkedin you can find me at Nee griffith i'll be back with the next episode in two weeks time so in the meantime remember to sign up to my newsletter at sundayskies.com for further insights on how to lead with impact until next time bye